Okay, first guy to take Ryan Eversley around a racetrack in a race car, <laughs> and also three-time yeah. former the 5000 champion, factory Porsche driver, factory Ford driver, just one of my all-time heroes, Brian Redman. If you could describe your dinner with racers in a couple of words, what would they be? Well, I think this was one of the greatest nights of my life. I got to speak about myself and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> like a perfect race car driver. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Because when I get home, my wife will say, I suppose you spoke all night about you. I said, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio Dinner with Racers, season number three. I am Sean Heckman. I am Ryan Eversley. And we are literally driving from Charlotte to Atlanta, finishing up a 34-day journey. 34-day journey <laughs> that uh, drove across 25 states, 13,000 miles to bring you 29 free recordings of meals that you can listen to, enjoy, and possibly wonder why we didn't ask some of the hard-hitting questions that you would have asked. You know, if it was me, I would have asked him this. So we headed down to Fort Pierce, Florida, to meet up with one of the true legends of road racing, Mr. Brian Redman. Brian was one of the first guys to ever take me for a ride in a race car as a young man, and so I was very excited to be able to sit down and have a beer with him and just you know shoot the shit over motorsports brian Rudd. his career is absolutely amazing he started out racing saloon cars and working his way into gt cars before long he was a factory porsche driver racing at Le Mans, sebring daytona you name it we covered a huge number of topics with him uh we learned which driver had the best game turning down a ferrari f1 ride some real stories from living in South Africa in 1971. <laughs> but anyway, we got down there courtesy of this Acura MDX driven by none other than uh, Dario Franchitti. Yeah, yeah. Now that was me. Oh, God. Uh, oh, whoa, whoa. Uh, really, man? Whoa. Again? And of course, all of this made completely, completely possible thanks to... Continental Tire? Again, the people demand it. Tired. Yeah. Here we go. Show must go on. Continental Tire. Cross contact. LX Sport. Is that what you wanted? Yeah. Play Brian Redman now. Brian Redman. Brian Redman. Meow. All right. We're going to start in five, four, three, two. Oh, hey. It's us. How are you? Good to see you, Brian. How are you? Good to see you. Oh, this is weird. <laughs> hey, Rich. How are you? <laughs> uh, let's have you put that on. There we go. Can you hear okay? Yeah. Okay. It should only be in one side. Yeah, okay. it's on this side, but I am slightly deaf, but my you hearing do? aid is in. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. In, so I can hear you. So you're definitely known in this restaurant. Yeah. All the ladies yeah. seem to remember yeah. you. Yeah, we come here probably once a week. 
Yeah, it's um, and just to reaffirm it because this we hardly ever go to the restaurants in Vero Beach where we live, which are all fancy yeah. restaurants. But we went to one um, about a week ago, and really, it wasn't that good. I mean, it wasn't as good as this. Okay. And it's like right. double the price. <coughs> oh, then what's the point? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And this what's is the like point? <laughs> when, when I read the uh, when I read the, the name of the restaurant, I was like, oh, it's going to be like a nice, fancy marina style restaurant, and it is. It's, it's fantastic. It's a bar. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's not what I expected. It's not white linen and whatnot. I mean, this, no, is, no, this is a no, proper like no. beachside uh, kind of yeah. deal. No, uh, I'll leave that to David Hobbs. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so is this more your style? The the sort of uh, greasy spoon is the wrong term, but but this, is, this is not ritzy yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. You should see where I go for lunch. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a biker bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, and you weren't sure if you'd be here or Savannah. I guess it's right. a sort of historical event. Mm. Is it, I mean, it seems like you're driving just as much as you ever did at, at uh, vintage not events. Quite. Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, and really, it's more accurate to say that I drive in races. Fair enough. Not As that I'm racing. To race driving. <laughs> sure. Okay. 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 But that's not lack of talent. That's because they're more of a historical event. Is that what well? You're it's no, because I can still go fairly quickly. I, but I believe it. I I know that you know stuff my brain t telling me to do okay uh, that if I do it I'll, I'll have an accident <laughs> 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 I have so the same problem when I'm overtaking <laughs> I, I spend two or three laps behind somebody to be sure okay, that yeah. where I'm going to do it is going to work <laughs> right right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. so you actually do get wiser with age yeah yeah <laughs> so the first time I ever rode in a race car in my life was somewhere in the early 90s at Roebling Road it was a Chevron B19. Yes, wow. And you were the driver. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So yes. We, were, we were there. I think it was one of the early Target 66 yes, events. Yes, it probably was. I Richard mean. Morrison, Dr. Richard, as we called him. Yes. He had, he mm. had a Chevron B19. He did. Cannon car. Mm -hmm. And uh, it didn't have a passenger seat, but mm -hmm. it did have all the, the places for the seatbelts to be bolted in. Mm -hmm. So I'm out there riding around my go-kart. I'm eight years old, just riding around the infield. Yeah. And my dad waves me over to pit lane, and you had been giving rides to people. And so literally picked me up from underneath my arms and went to put me in the chevron and i had no interest i was like no 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 that's scary that's too fast i don't, I don't know what i'm doing and yeah. uh puts me in the car i remember it was a packing blanket was pretty much all i had for a seat and then just strapped me in and i was wearing his helmet and so like you know things bopping all over the place and so we went and we did a handful of laps and we're coming down the front straight of the first time roebling road's got a very long front straightaway it's you know pretty fast and I remember as we're coming by the pits the first time, you grabbed my hand to put it up to wave. No. And so I said, okay, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so I put my hand up. I'm, I, I'm scrawny as can be. Yeah. And my hand goes right in the roll bar. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Duh. and you help me put it back down. Yeah, it was George Hood's B19. I sold it uh, to him in 1982. Okay. Yeah, when I was working for Brumos in Jacksonville. Yeah. And he didn't drive. You know, he didn't drive on the street. And he says, what's that? I said, it's a Chevron B19. How much? <laughs> I said, $32,000. He said, if I buy it, will you drive it? I said, well, I'm a professional driver. He said, what does that mean? <laughs> I said, it means I get paid $5,000 a race plus expenses. He said, right. And so I did it for more than 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That day turned my, my eyes towards wanting to actually really drive. I always liked racing and being around the cars in my dad's shop. But I didn't know or really understand how much I'd really like it. 
And when we did laps, apparently you were running like laps in the 111s and 112s, which didn't mean anything to me at the time. But later in life, my parents explained that that was very quick yeah. around that track. So how old are you now? I'm 33. 33, because we started talking 26 years ago. Right, right. Yes, well, yeah. it was one of That's the probably early. right around then. Right around yeah, then. Yeah, I was a little yes. guy for yeah. sure. <laughs> and so now I do this for a living, yeah. and I blame you. Mm. It's all your fault. Good. <laughs> 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 Explain what the Chevron was to you because you worked with uh, Derek Bennett who started mm. Chevron and not a lot of people, especially in America, know what a Chevron even is other than a gas no. station, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Chevron uh, were in Bolton in Lancashire and I was born in Burnley, Lancashire. And, and so just I was to be clear, this is not Chevron the gas station. This is no. a race car. Right. It's a race car, yeah. yeah. About 25 miles away and I first got to know Chevron in about 1968. Mm -hmm when uh no 67 because i turned professional in 67 because the brother of a man i'd been driving for had been driving for charles bridges who's called uh, david bridges he said do you want to turn professional i said what does that mean he said it means i'll pay you 30 <laughs> quid a week Ooh, oh good money about 50 dollars a week at that time yeah Guaranteed for a year with a car and a mechanic. That's how I turned professional. Nice. nice. And he had a Chevron B5. And a B5 was a little uh, two-seater coupe. Normally, it had a two-litre BMW engine that Paul Owens, Derek Bennett's right-hand man, used to build, okay. you know, by hand with no dyno or anything. Right. He used to build them. But this particular car had a two-litre Tasman BRM V8. Okay. One and a half litre. Two-litre, sorry. Two-litre with about 230 horsepower, you know, so it was really quick. It yeah. was fantastic. And in fact, at Croft one year, so North of England racetrack, I led Denny Hume in his McLaren uh, Can-Am car for yeah. three laps until the cab throttle cable broke. And that was the story of that car. You know, always something broke on okay. it. It was really quick. Yeah. Well, Should we go back to the beginning? How, uh, how did it all begin? Sure. Uh, but uh, I have to know something real quick. Who is GT Joe? <laughs> he's an amazing uh, guy that I met at Amelia Island. Okay. And he's a huge enthusiast. Okay. And he's constantly taking videos. I'm not quite sure what he does with it. Ah, okay. okay. And he Fair goes enough. off on these strange trips, like, you know, driving to Alaska and back and that sort of thing. Oh, huh. he's kind of like us. Yeah. yeah. Video <laughs> camera. Okay. No, he's a, he's a great enthusiast. Okay. I met at okay. Amelia Island several years ago. Okay. Uh, yeah. Why, why, why do you... Oh, wait. <laughs> the first voicemail you left might have been for him accidentally. Ah. So I, I get this voicemail. It's Brian Redman for GT Joe. I'm oh. Like, I'm not GT Joe, but who the hell is this yeah. guy? So we, we joked <laughs> about it for the our last... Our theory is that GT Joe is like following us on a rival podcast, and we've yeah. never heard of him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Mm. Nope. No, not, not quite. Not okay. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what he does, but he does f take film. Okay. okay. That's Amelia Island. Nice. And he probably does it somewhere else. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Fair right. enough. All right. <laughs> Question yeah, answered. Now we know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so born in Lancashire, England. Where does the racing begin? Well, I, I hadn't been to very many races. I'd seen Sterling Moss oh, win the cool. British Grand Prix at Aintree in 1955. Yeah. And uh, finishing second was one Manuel Fangio, the great multi-time world yeah, champion. Yeah. And a lap from the end of the race, he was well, you know, he was 200 yards behind Sterling. But on the last lap, on that lap, he caught him and crossed the finish line half a car's length behind. Right. So three years ago at Amelia Island, I was with Sterling. 
Well, I said, Sterling, uh, do you think Fangio will let you win the British Grand Prix in 1955 at Aintree? And he said, do you know, old boy, I've often wondered about that. (laughs) 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 And so, um, after doing uh, three years at Catering College and two years in the army, I was, you know, put into the army and conscripted, really. And I was one of the last in that era, and I went into the PBI. Have you heard of that? No. No, it's called the Poor Bloody Infantry. (laughs) 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 So two years there, I came out, and I started working in the grocery business for my father. And my grandfather on my mother's side passed away, died at, what, 72? Mm -hmm. And he'd been a very keen car person. He'd had a Fraser Nash BMW 328 before the war and a Bristol 400 and 401 after the war, and an Aston Martin DB24. Yeah. And when he died, he had a MGA, okay. you know, so he was a very keen car guy. Yeah, yeah. And I bought this mop head business where you mops that you clean the floors mm-hmm. and those woolly things from my mother for $1,000. And uh, I bought a Morris 1000 Woody, a traveler's car, okay. and I put a supercharger on it <laughs> and a harder brake linings, the drum brakes. Yeah. And a roll bar front and rear, an anti-tramp back it, and of course no safety bolts, no roll cage. Right, naturally. But I was driving like a maniac <laughs> on the road, you know, <laughs> driving this. Anybody passed me, I'd go 50 miles out of my way to get past again. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'd better get on the track, and of course. Uh, I had a bit of a shock because I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was. <laughs> That's how it always is. <laughs> That's right? how it has to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got to Ruffeth near York on Easter Monday in 1959. And then the following year, I bought a, a very new at that time 848cc Mini, okay. Mini Miner, yeah, yeah. which I modified. And uh, then the year after that, I bought an XK120 because I thought it would be more reliable. But I bought a, a set of used racing tyres and went to a race at uh, Catterick an army camp and I wore the tyres off in one day yeah. that was the end of racing that I couldn't afford it <laughs> and the following year of Morgan plus four and then in September of 62 I got married to Marion and no money and I went motocross for two years oh on wow. motorbikes yeah. and uh, from time to time I would drive somebody else's car there yeah. was Harry Ratcliffe from Rochdale well Little near Rochdale and so I drive his cars occasionally. He went into Mini Cooper 1275 S's. And then another friend had an XK120 yeah. that had belonged uh, to the factory. It had been driven by Sterling Moss. And uh, he said to me one day, do you want to drive it in a time trial, you know, a sprint? Mm-hmm. And it, it, three of his other pals were driving it. And he was sort of like five people driving it. Yeah. But I got fastest time of day. And he said, I know Charlie Bridges from Red Rose Motors in Chester, who's just bought the ex-Graham Hill uh, Jaguar Lightweight E-Type. Oh, wow, yeah. 4WPD, the most famous of the lightweights. Yeah. And I'll get you a try. I'll get you a drive. I'll get you a drive. So I arrive at Alton Park uh, on Thursday. This was on your, This was Monday where we did the sprint. It was Easter Monday. And so Thursday morning, there I am at Alton Park with Charlie Bridges and the mechanic had come from uh, John Coombs, who'd been the owner of the Graham Hill car. John Coombs, big car dealer in the south of England, and Terry Wells, the mechanic, had come with the E-Type to Chester in the north of England. So we all talked. Anyway, I knew it was a great opportunity, and I I drove over my own ability, really. (laughs) Uh, Went three and a half seconds faster than Charlie, the owner. Yeah. And under the second and a half under Jackie Stewart's uh, class record, okay. 
in the Courier Cross GT or something. And so Charlie says to me, this is Thursday, what are you doing on Saturday? I said, well, nothing. He said, come and race it. So I raced it at Alton Park okay. on Saturday. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I, I raced it 15 times that year. I was beaten once. Really? Wow. In gotcha. September of 1965 by Ron Fry, who was a car dealer from okay. London, who was driving a 250 LM Ferrari. Oh, yeah, oh, okay. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sure. So we had a fantastic year. And right. Charlie, at the end of that year, said, what would you like to do next? And I said, well, you know, the only real way upwards is Formula 3. But I'd just been to Croft and I'd seen a Can-Am race. They yeah. didn't call them Can-Am at that time, but they were Can-Am cars. Right. With Denny Hume and Bruce Mathara and David Hobbs driving a Lola. And I said, boy, if I had any choice, I'd have one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And he got one. Oh, oh yes. Lola T70 Mark II. So yeah. again, we're back at Oulton Park yeah. in about April of 1966. And Charlie says to me, we're looking at this beautiful red Lola T70. And Terry Wells is there, the mechanic. He said, right, he said, bugger you, Redman, it's my car, I'm driving it first. <laughs> so he jumps in, and of course, no safety belts. In there. And off they go, and I hear it go whistling around the track, and it comes hurtling past the bit, and then I hit, and it stopped about two feet Ooh. from a giant oak tree <laughs> that was on the apex of Old Hall Corner. Of course, nice. Yeah. He got out, he said, I'm never driving that bloody thing again. <laughs> So we had a good year, but of course in club racing it was a superior car. Yeah. Uh, but we were now running in internationals as well. Okay. So we were racing against McLaren and Hume and Surtees, Graham Hill, everybody. And we finished up winning a Grovewood Award at the end of the year, which okay. was the uh, three most promising drivers. Ah, sure, sure. Right. So now I'm driving Formula 2 yeah. in a Lola. And uh, yeah, again, in international races, you know, racing all over the continent and all the rest of it. Uh, but in September of that year, 67, we did a race at Montlhery near Paris uh, in David Piper's 250LM Ferrari, driving with Richard Atwood, yeah, yeah. who went on to win Le Mans in yeah. the 917 right. in 1970 yeah. at Porsche. And um, we did okay. We won our class, and uh, it rained hard throughout the race, terrible. And after the race, the team manager for the famous John Wire racing team came up to me and he said Redmond would you care to drive with Ix at Kyle Army nine hour race in Johannesburg in November and I said yes and we won yeah so now I've got a contract for 68 yeah you know with the best long distance team in the business right and because of the win at Kyle Army the Cooper car company who were going downhill at that time uh -huh. uh, and were looking for a cheap driver said would I like to do the Grand Prix would I like to do Formula One yeah. so now beginning of 68 I'm doing Formula One <laughs> World Sports Car Championship yeah. and Formula 2. <laughs> and Not a bad uh, deal. Ix and I win at, um, at Brands Hatch, six hours, and yeah. we win at Spa Francorchamps, which is a home track in the rain again, 1,000 yeah. yeah. Ks, 600 miles. And I finished third in the Spanish Grand Prix in my second uh, Grand Prix. Yeah. But only because everybody broke down. <laughs> and I started last, and my teammate was Ludovico Scarfiotti. The Italian nobleman okay. and a member of the founding Fiat family. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, and he was a delightful guy. Yeah. And uh, anyway, off we go. And halfway through the race, you know, we're ninth and tenth. And three quarters of the way through, we're fifth and sixth. And I thought, huh, 
<laughs> if I get past him, I might finish on the podium. So yeah. I nip past him and finish third. <laughs> so going round on this open Fiat convertible after the race, there's Graham Hill, who won on the right. Yeah. Denny Hume, who was second in the middle, and me on the left. Yeah. And I'd been turning to my left to wave to the crowd, and I turned to my right. And as I turned to my right, Graham Hill turned to his left, and he saw me, you know, for the first time, really. Yeah. And his jaw dropped, and his arm dropped, and he said... Christ almighty, don't tell me you were bloody third. <laughs> <laughs> and then a week after that was the back to Spa Francorchamps for the Belgian Grand Prix, Formula One. Yeah. And on about the. Oh, and before the race, Colin Chapman came up to me and he said, Redmond, how long is your contract with Cooper? And I said, oh, well, five more races. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Chapman, <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> come and see me when it's over. Well, on the seventh lap, the right front suspension broke, okay. and I had an enormous accident. Yeah, yeah. I went over the barrier, and it was one of the few corners where there was a barrier, yeah. Lake Coombe at the top of the hill, mm -hmm. where they turn right today, yeah. where they turn right at Lake Coombe, we used to turn left and would disappear off into the Belgian countryside. Yeah. And uh, three wheels came off the car. One oh. of them hit a corner worker who was badly injured. Yeah. It caught fire. Yeah. And uh, I'd, my arm was badly broken as it went over the barrier. It got trapped between the car and the barrier. Yeah. And the ulna and radius both broke and came out. So oh. it was a compound fracture. Oh. Right. Bones were out like this. Yeah. And four hours later, I'm at the University of Liège teaching hospital with Professor Ferdinand Orban, <laughs> who'd been a Winston Churchill aide in World War II. Wow, okay. And they got me on the table. He says, Monsieur Edmund, it may not be possible to save the arm. Yeah. I smiled. I said, thank you, Professor. He says, why are you smiling? I said, because I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you may imagine, this was a bit of a setback. I just had yeah. a, a daughter born in uh, February, yeah. Charlotte, yeah. and this is only like May. So, and I'm out of racing for the rest of the year. Yeah. Uh, but in uh, September, at the local hospital in Burnley, they took one x-ray of my arm and they said, it's okay. So I called Derek Bennett at Chevron, yeah. who I knew went testing on Tuesday <coughs> at Aintree. And he said, come and drive the Chevron, the B8. Yeah. So I drove, whistled around. He said, do you want to drive it in the South African series in November? <laughs> I said, yeah, great. <laughs> so off we go to South Africa. We do the Kyle Army nine hours with a co-driver. And then I do the Cape Town three hours, and that's a thousand miles south, yeah. you know, and uh, by myself, and then three hours at Lorenzo Marks in uh, Bulawayo, sorry, Lorenzo Marks on the coast, and then three hours at Bulawayo. So, um, after we'd done the three hours at Bulawayo, we were coming back to another race, and we are going past Johannesburg. Okay. And my arm had been hurting a bit. It wasn't killing me, but it wasn't, you know, right. too good. So... As we went past, I rang Alex Blichnout, who was the organiser of the nine-hour race and the Grand Prix, and I said, Alex, do you know any good bone men in the Johannesburg area? He said, yes, Brian, man, I know the Christian Barnard of the bone world. Well, of course, Christian Barnard was the heart transplant okay. guy who started all that. So it's a Friday afternoon, I go to see David Rue, and he takes 20 x-rays, and he says, sit down, Brian, man, I've got two bits of bad news for you. I said, what? He said, the first is, you don't have any union of either bone in the forum. I said, what? What's the second? He said, I'm going on vacation tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I said, I've just signed a contract with Porsche for 1969. Yeah. 
and Porsche were coming in because they now had the chance for the first time ever to win the World Manufacturers Championship. Right. I said, I have to be at Daytona in six weeks. Yeah. And he said, I'll try a procedure that might work and it might not. And the operator the next morning opened my arm up from my wrist to be up to there, just on the original scar. And he cleaned off the broken ends here and took bone out of my hip and glued it in place oh. <laughs> and wow. didn't put it in plaster. Ah. He said, don't use it till you have to. So I get to Daytona at the end of January. I don't tell anybody, of course. I throw this yeah. thing away. Right. And I'm driving these long tail 908 with yeah. Mick Elfin, but on the banking at you know, pretty well 200 miles an hour with one hand like this. With my knee, hanging on, right. Like right. That. And this hand's resting on the wheel in case I need it. And so about eight in the evening, the first of the five factory cars comes in the pits with the engine misfiring. Right. The engineers examined it and they said, we are finished. They will all break. They were built. We were out by midnight. Yeah. So they then sent Siffert and me to Sebring to do a 24-hour test. Wow. 24-hour test for 12-hour race. At 20 hours, the chassis broke. The engineers said, "This is good. The race is only 12 hours." Guess what? All the cars broke their chassis. Really? And I think that was the race that. Peter Revson and uh, McQueen, McQueen finished second. second. Yeah. But they re they got a piece of metal fencing mm -hmm. and repaired, you know, I say it repaired, they fixed the chassis up with that. Yeah, so made it work. But from then on, the 908s never missed a beat. And Joe Sifford and I won five of the ten races to win the championship for Porsche yeah. for the first time. Wow. So uh, I can't remember... Who we had dinner with three days ago? <laughs> I thought that's where you were going. How on earth? I heard. I just heard thirty-five names Doc, uh, in over a three-year span. South and Africa. Like, yeah. what? What do you? I need to know what? What is? What's your? What's your know. diet? It's possibly because I was thrown out of school when I was sixteen. I was at a boys' boarding school in Lancashire, okay. Russell, and the headmaster called me into his study. He said. Uh, Redman, I suggest you leave school. We can't teach you anything. <laughs> and I, left, I left at 16. Well, it's because you retained it all, clearly. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, you were good yeah. at that point. Yeah, that's it. I'm, so. I'm just impressed at your, your recollection of any name yeah. and any location. Uh, I, I literally cannot <laughs> tell you who we had dinner with three right. days ago. But anyway. So by in, in just a couple of years, you went from having barely club raced to now your teammates in factory programs oh, running Kyalami. Podium, Kaya Lame, podium Formula mean. One race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's, I mean, unless you're Max Verstappen, that's pretty much unheard of today. Uh, uh, was that co more common then? It wasn't so common, really. Um, but, you know, we never talked about it. We never showed, we never saw teammates' lap times or anything. You right, know, there's really? Nothing. Interesting. No, no I just, mean, just you, you did the best you could. Well, Nobody ever said. Couldn't you just get well, off the data readouts? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what what was the goal for you? I mean, was like, did you grow up a fan of racing? No. Was this no? It no. just something you sort of stumble into and yeah. I'd found something I could do. Yeah, yeah. You know, so bad at school. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, because a lot of a lot, I mean, a lot of kids when they're growing up wanting to race Formula One, Formula One, yeah, Formula One. That's all they no want to do. And, and yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you like Formula yeah. One wasn't your fixed no. thing that you had to be into. No. And that shows up uh, a little bit later here. Mm -hmm. Even a fan of sports car racing has no yes. idea <laughs> that the Targa Floria was open roads mm. while villagers are going to and from with <laughs> everything you can think of.
can you give us a overall description yeah, of the Targa Florio? Let's yeah, talk if, us through if what. If a twenty-eight-year-old is like, what was the Targa Florio? Well, How you know, it? the Targa Florio was unbelievable, and you can see quite a lot of it on uh, YouTube today, yeah, yeah. including a simulation with the Golf uh, 9083, which is very good. It's very well done. Okay, but it's just corner after corner after corner, and Porsche even went to the trouble. They, uh, of, of making the gearbox uh, an H-pattern for speed. No, normally, first gear would be out of the gate and down to the left. Okay. Now, in this case, fifth gear was out of the gate. Okay. Yeah. And it was up to the right of the third, alongside third, mm -hmm. because we only used it once a lap. Sure. And it was a th more than a three-mile straight, you know, <laughs> four-mile straight. Yeah. Actually, wow. Yeah. Along the along the seafront, like this. And so driving it was extremely difficult because, you know, not only were the goats and sheep and <laughs> dogs and people. Yeah. Right. You look at the photographs, there are people all over the place. Yeah. And the three villagers that you went through, people are lining the side of the road. Right. And you're going, going certainly 150 miles an hour yeah. right between them. And of course, you know, it was controlled by the Mafia. And so you never heard about the terrible accidents that happened ah. until oh, later days when there was for more communication. Yeah. Okay. You know, by the seven, mid-70s, there was a lot of communication yeah. and they couldn't get away with it anymore. But you never heard about spectators who were killed. Right. Yeah, there's, a, there's a YouTube clip where, from the speed yeah. where, yeah, from speed merchants where Vic Elford's given a, a yes. tour of the lab. Yes. And he just casually mentions that he, he had an accident once where he he clipped like a safety car yeah. and he clipped a spectator yeah. and it just keeps going as if it was nothing yes. um, and that yeah. was pretty normal so well the, actually the most dangerous part where because for the race the you know officials and the police went round the villages shouting you know shut your doors shut up your dogs your donkeys and your women <laughs> yeah right. right they did they did yeah. And so, you know, it was only the real enthusiasts who were actually lining the roads and lining really the villages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the worst thing was the one, you only got one lap in the race car yeah. before the race. You didn't, you pr you didn't oh practice wow. in the race car. Okay. And that was on, uh, that would be on Friday, and it was one lap on, on a public road with trucks. So it's just open to Open road, yeah. open road. Yeah. So, if you're, so it's to just learn the track. If you wanted to learn it earlier, you'd yeah. literally just have to get in a passenger car and just kind of drive it just to get yeah. a sense of you what it was. You couldn't really learn it. I mean, yeah. it was just... Well, I now understand why you were so good at it. Because if you can remember... Yeah, if you can remember names for, for four years, you probably remember every no, corner. I, so. I used... When I saw paint on a wall coming into a village where it says, Atomcion Nino. You know that Nino Vaccarella crashed there the year before. And that's oh, why they're oh, painting. Yeah, the famous Ferrari <laughs> driver and all those, yeah. Wow. So, you know, it was amazing, really. In, in 1969, my first time with Richard Atwood in a 908, I think he had something uh, went wrong, so we didn't finish. 1970, we won. But when people ask me, what was your greatest race? They, they expect you to say something like that. But it wasn't really, because what happened... When I, when I joined, Sifat drove three laps, and then I joined in. We're in fourth place. Uh, but I closed on the leader. Who and was a lap is like 40 minutes. You said Sifat did three laps, but a lap was like 40 minutes. Yes, less. Yes, right, less. Right. Yeah, 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 less than 40 minutes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so go on. So I, I caught up to the leader, Nino Vaccarella. Yeah. The Sicilian hero in a Ferrari 512. Yeah. Big thing, not suitable for the Targa at all. Yeah. And I tried to pass him three times in what was my first lap. Yeah. There's no way he's going to push me off the road. And when we get on the Bonafello straight, he pulls away because he's got a top speed, you know, 170 odd. 
and I've got a top speed of 160 odd. So, but I can catch him up again by the time we get back to the pits because after the end of the straight, there are quite a few corners before you get back to the pit. Yeah. So I deliberately sat behind him for 100 miles waiting for the pit stop. <laughs> and we passed him in the pit. <laughs> Still did it. Yeah. And then in 1971, I'd, you know, in 70, I'd made a foolish retirement to South Africa, came back, no drive, but did the one-off drive for Porsche, for the Targa Florio, because the driver who'd taken my place in the team, Derek Bell, had never done the Targa. Yeah. Uh, Sivert crashed the car the day before the race. It was repaired overnight, and unusually, they wanted me to start because they... Why? I said, Redmond, we'd like you to start. I said, what for? He said, I don't want Siffert and Rodriguez knocking each other off. <laughs> <laughs> so I started, and right from the start, the handling wasn't normal. Yeah. And I got 20 miles round the 44-mile track and the steering book. Ooh. And I hit a stone kilometre post right in the fuel tank. Ooh. And it exploded. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, I was on fire from head to foot, soaked in fuel. And how I got out, I don't know. You know, somehow I closed my eyes, held my breath, stood up in the seat and jumped. And, I'm, you know, I was out. Yeah. And I was blind. I couldn't see. Uh, there was no attention for 45 minutes. Helicopter couldn't find anywhere to land. Oh, God. And I was taken to somewhere where nobody knew where I was. I was there yeah. like 12 hours until Richard Atwood and uh, Pedro Rodriguez came looking for me and found me at about 10 o'clock that night. Jeez. Took me back to the hotel where a German doctor with the Porsche team gave me painkiller. Yeah. The next day, Gulf and Porsche rented a jet out of Geneva, and it flew me to Manchester. The main Burns hospital in uh, England was closed for infection, so I went to Christie's, which is a cancer hospital, and they have a private wing, and that's where I was. And the Burns surgeon was another World War II surgeon. Fantastic guy. So another several another weeks and weeks of... No, terrible, really. Imagine if you hadn't been driving for Porsche and yeah, Golf and John Wire and all that. If you're just some guy in a smaller team with a crash like that, you don't have the resources to get back to no. England, you know? No. Wow. No. Man. So, I raced again about four weeks after in a <laughs> Formula 5000 Sounds car. Sounds right. Okay. But the <laughs> helmet was touching where I'd been burnt up here. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. And the, the doctor said, you've got to take six weeks off. So, I bought a uh, caravan. Uh -huh. A 20-foot caravan, and towed it to the south of France uh, with two little children. Because James, at that time, this was 1971, would have been six, uh, so Charlotte was three. And uh, whilst I was there, one Monday morning, I'm going down from uh, the washroom, and an English guy who knew that I was interested in racing said, "You know that guy who was killed yesterday?" I said, "No." He said, "Rudd something." I said, "Rodriguez." He said, "Yeah, Rodriguez." What? So I got back to the trailer in tears. My wife said, what's the matter? I said, Pedro's dead. And then we get back to England from this, and I'm watching uh, a non-championship Formula One race on television, and I see my great co-driver, Joseph, killed. Yeah. Something broke on the car, and he hit a, a banking, and it turned over and caught fire. Yeah. And he was asphyxiated. All he had was a broken ankle. Oh you know, no. But there was no equipment in those days. Yeah, right. and there was yeah. nothing. I mean, obviously, at that time, a lot of people were... were, were <laughs> yeah. Uh, going through that were like Rodriguez and Siffert kind of the two that hit you the hardest yes because I was closest to them yeah. mm -hmm. you know well, the others Jim Clark who I'd raced against in uh, 1967 in Formula 2 when he was killed well when he was killed we're at uh, Brands Hatch doing the, the six hour race it's raining I'm feeling nervous it's only my second or third race in the GT40 yeah. and a journalist came up to me 
Heard about Jimmy? I said, what? Killed at Hockenheim. I said, thank you. Great. Great. Yeah. Thanks for the news. Yeah. yeah. Mike Spence was killed, who I didn't know very well, but knew, you know, yeah. very well. Yeah. Then another guy was killed, who I was doing Formula 2 with, at Silverstone. We were testing at Silverstone. And the local pub's called the Green Man. And I just said, uh, I'm going for lunch, Chris. He said, oh, I'll just do a couple more laps and I'll join you. So he never joined me. Yeah. Been ah, yeah. Yeah. So, happened all the time. Me, Ludovico Scarfiotti, for the Belgian uh, Spa Frankish 1000 Ks, where. No, wait a minute. No, the Grand Prix, where I was injured. He should have been my teammate, but he had a prior commitment for Porsche at a hill climb at Rossfeld in Austria, and on Saturday morning the news came through he'd been killed. They'd gone off into the trees. Yeah. So like the throttler jammed over. And my new teammate was a delightful Belgian, Lucien Bianchi. Yeah. And a year later he was killed when his alpha went off into the trees at Le Mans. And a few months after that, his wife was killed. They had four children. She was thrown oh. off a horse and she was killed. It was like, I mean, was a, I mean you, 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 you know, you had to ignore it. I mean, if you, right. if you. Well, and that's what I'm hearing right now in your voice, just that it's to you, you're just sort of rattling off a list, almost yeah. to the point that you're almost numb to it because it just seemed to happen every other week. It did, right. yeah. yeah, it did. I mean, I tried to avoid going to funerals, but I had to go, oh, well, <laughs> in 69, we got a call from Porsche. Uh, Edmund, you know uh, Herr Mitter has been killed. You must come to the funeral in Stuttgart. As well, right. And Herr Edmund, yes? You must wear your driver uniform. Oh, wow. What? So, what? That's so I arrive practice. in Stuttgart, put our uniforms. I'm carrying the coffin. In a uniform. You know, and I'm standing right in front of his wife. His wife is as far with two little children, a boy and a girl, the same age as mine. Yeah. And I was upset. And after, the, uh, after we put the coffin in the ground, uh, Udo Schutz, one of the other team members, say, Brian, he said, I see you are very upset at the funeral of Gat. I said, yeah. He said, I never knew you care so much for Gat. I said, I didn't care for him at all. I didn't like him. I said, I'm thinking it's going to be me. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. Because right. all yeah. you're seeing is, is yeah. this projection, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually you left the sport. I mean, it was even like you said, it was only for a few months, but you left the sport. Yeah. Uh, was, it, was it the safety side of it? or was I, it wasn't, just I wasn't really worried personally about being injured or, or killed, because you know, I'd already been through the... Through the uh, yeah, the accident in 1968, and I knew that um, you don't actually feel anything at the time, you know. Ah, okay. yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And so, so you're not scared of that no, oh crap moment not, where you know it's really, coming. No. Yeah. yeah, but I was more worried about my little children. Right, yeah. yeah. well, that's a kids. legit thing. Yeah. Because every time when you left home at that time, you never, you know, you kiss your wife goodbye and your children goodbye. I mean, you both know it might be the last time. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. Uh, it was <laughs> difficult. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. But you either do it or you don't. Right. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Or you don't want to do it. There's a thousand people waiting to take your place. Yeah. When you ended up getting the the Golf GT40 ride and then eventually the factory Porsche ride, did you have the? I mean, I know you've done the F1 stuff as well. Did Did you have this like, oh my God, I'm one of the greatest drivers in the world right now. I'm getting all these <laughs> opportunities. Like there are a million kids that wish they I'm could. I'm invincible, right? Yeah. Like I mean, obviously, it seemed like you were conscious that you could get hurt, but. Did you understand that like these are like the like the well, highlights no, of your career? No, because it didn't seem anything special at that time. Right, right. Yeah. All I was trying to do was earn a living, and I mean, in those three years—sixty-eight, nine, and seventy. 
I got a thousand dollars a race for Le Mans, Daytona, and Sebring, and yeah. seven hundred and fifty for all the others. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Which is why everybody at that time drove everything they could. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. no money. You know, yeah. yeah. So. No, I didn't feel that at all. No. Yeah, you seem very sensible. When you got your first thousand dollar check, did you go buy something stupid? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, when I got um, when I, I, I th did I mention when I came back and we got the BRM Can-Am car. In 71? No. I don't think we've we got there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we haven't there. gotten that far in your career. Yeah. <laughs> well, I came back after this foolish retirement to Johannesburg after yeah. only four months and didn't have a drive, of course. And I yeah. sent all the household furniture, the car, my wife and kids to Johannesburg and we came back. It was because uh, one o'clock one evening in uh, late February, we're asleep and there's a banging on the door and I go outside and there's a huge African policeman there. Okay. There are two of them. And it sounds terrible today, but in those days it was very common for, you know, middle class people to have servants for the house. Okay. okay. A maid and somebody for the garden. This was just life in Johannesburg. It was. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Very much so. So this policeman says, Good evening, sir, he said. I've come to inspect your servants' passes. Well, these are the passes you have to have to go anywhere. You know, they have to pay a pass. So, the, so, so if you're, because I assume they were, they were black. Yes. So if you were black in that area, you had to have, like, you basically have to have a, a ticket that said, I'm yes, allowed papers, to be here. Yes, right, yeah. So 15 minutes later, he comes back in again. By this time, I'm dressed. You know, I'm right. shaking. And yeah. He says, sir, please come round. Your servants won't come out. So I go round the back. Joseph, Joseph. This is the motto, please come out. And he comes out shaking. He's a completely illegal immigrant from Rhodesia. Ah, and he's okay. in the police van. Now, Grace, the house girl, uh, she's shaking. And she's got papers, but not for our area, for another oh. area. Oh, sure. She's in the van. Okay. So I say to the policeman, what happens now? He said, trial at 7 o'clock in the morning. And oh, I get Jesus. the address and I go down. And there's a Nissan hut, you know, a tin, tin roof hut with about 300 black people in it. Okay. There's one white magistrate. And so basically, they round all these people up. They're all milling around. Yeah. So okay, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the white ma the, ma the, ma the magistrate never looks up when the charges are read out by the clerk. Of course, he just gives a sentence. Doesn't so my man comes up, Joseph. Joseph Motobuto, contravening section of 68 of Act of 1945. Oh, six months in jail, a 100 rand fine. So I pay it and put him back in the car. There's no paperwork. Ah. Grace comes up, the fine's a bit smaller. I put her in the car. Yeah. And I say, Grace, Joseph, yes, boss. I said, if you get picked up again, I can't do this. You know, you're on your own. Thank you, boss. When I take them home, and that day, I said to my wife, we're going home. Yeah. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah. I said these people are going to turn around one day. So I'd come back, no drive. Sid Taylor, who I'd driven for in 1969 in a Lola T70 Mark 3B GT, <laughs> and had a pretty good season. Uh, he said, I've got a Formula 5000 car, you can drive that. And it wasn't a very good one, it was a McLaren M18. And so we struggled away with that, and then I have this accident on the Targa Florio in May, and then I'm out for, I did one race four weeks later, then I'm out for another six weeks. So at the end of that year, <coughs> things are looking pretty gloomy, yeah. really. Yeah. However, Sid borrowed a BRM, British Racing Motors, Can-Am car, mm -hmm. And Sid says, well, we'll go and do Imola with it and uh, Hockenheim. So off we go to Imola, and it's raining pretty hard, actually. And we lapped the field. Huh. 
and the, it was a Tony Southgate design, and oh. all Tony's cars yeah. were good in the rain. Yeah. And in the field was a factory Ferrari. So engineer Mauro Fagheri came <laughs> up to me and said, Brian, what are you doing next year? <laughs> so I joined Ferrari. So I was with them for two years, yeah, winning yeah. the World Sports Car Champ World Manufacturers Championship in uh, 72. But it was my second uh, interaction with Ferrari because in 68, I'd had a call from Ferrari and I'd gone to Modena to test the Formula 2 car. And... Uh, uh, during the test at lunchtime, Fergari said, Brian, you see over there under the trees in the raincoat? I said, yeah. He said, this is Signor Ferrari. What he was saying is try harder. Yeah, yeah, okay. So okay. I do a drive on the south circuit of the Nürburgring, which I'd never done. Um, it's similar in layout, but much shorter, probably five miles around instead of 14 miles, but still, you know, like this hedges. Still the drive, there. right. So... Um, towards the end of practice on Saturday, qualifying, I came in probably 10 minutes early and Fergari said, Brian, why you stop? Why you stop? I said, I've gone as fast as I can. He said, Brian, you are in 10th place. Go out and try harder. <laughs> so I go out and drive like a maniac. You go right. yeah. one tenth quicker. Uh, right. I've been in fourth all the time. Jackie yeah. Hicks was the team leader. Oh. Um, Kurt Ahrens was third I was fourth and I guess Piers Courage was second yeah. but anyway the race comes and about the third lap we're all together like this and I get a stone through my goggles you know he's a World War Two surplus right the goggles and were yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and I said stone gate from Ahrens's wheel he put a wheel off the track so I stop and I throw the goggles off and I, I and then I drive four miles, you know, at reduced no speed. And, and a damaged eye. And yeah. I get into the pits, the Gary says, What's the matter? What's the matter? I said, no, no, no. He says, It's okay, it's okay, wear your spare goggles. I said, I don't have any. He said, Take X's. Well, they were, they were some dark green sun goggles. Okay. Which were okay in the sun, but they weren't too good under the trees. Yeah. And okay. I, I drove like a maniac, you know, without <laughs> one thought, without one thought. And I was gaining two seconds a lap on the leader and finished fourth and set a new lap record that I got back to the hotel which was right there the sport hotel and I just sat on the bed like this for you know 20 minutes and I went down to dinner for Gary went he came back he said Brian I speak with Signor Ferrari for the rest of the year you drive the Formula Due Formula 2 and at the end of the year in September Formula Uno at Monza Wow. And I said, no, thank you. Really? <laughs> what? <laughs> I said, you turned down a Ferrari F1, yeah, right? Yeah. He says, what do you mean, and no, thank you? I said, if I drive for Ferrari, I'll be dead by the end of the year. Wow. So. Because you're being told to go faster and drive like a maniac. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and given false information. Right. They told you your tenth. You're actually in the yes. top four. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Because this was Ferrari in those days. Yeah. You know, That's the how they did it. Yeah. 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 Wow. Now, here's the, I mean, especially <laughs> that era, like, no one turns down Ferrari. You turn down Ferrari, you've killed your career. Yeah. Uh, but you just didn't care. Well, it's like either that or you're going to die. Right. <laughs> so in your mind, you were dead either way. So. Yeah. 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 So, so now 72, we're back. Ferrari, great. I asked Derek Bennett at Chevron if he could build a Formula 5000 car. He'd never mm -hmm. built anything like that. He said, yeah. I said, how long and how much? He said, as long 10 weeks and whatever it cost me. And I paid him £3,000 for the chassis. And Sid Taylor had the engine and gearbox. 
And out of the box, it was quick. And we broke the lap record at Ulton Park the first day. Okay. Won the first two races. And Sid said, we're going to America. 20,000 bucks for first place at Watkins Glen. Oh, wow. So, so you end up, from there, you, you go over to America. You almost win Watkins Glen. Mm. And then uh, you end up winning, was it? Riverside. Riverside. Yeah. And then that's when Carl Haas, uh, with yeah. his program, is like, hey, we need to get this kid. And then you sign up with them. You go on to win three Formula 5000 championships. Right. How did the Formula 5000 car compare to anything else you've driven? Because when we talk about those cars now, mm. it's like this holy crap, powerful, fast, lightweight mm. you know, car. Or did it kind of suit you since you'd already driven 917s and mm. 908s yeah, and Formula 1 cars? I don't think the power was any, any problem, really. Yeah. But, you know, the Chaparral team led by... I mean, it was a fantastic partnership, really, mm -hmm. because... Carl Haas was the Lola importer yeah. and Hewland Gearbox importer for America. And Jim Hall was the legendary designer yeah, yeah. and engineer. And it fitted perfectly because now Jim didn't have to worry about the money, which he'd always yep. had to do. Yep. All he had to do was run the car. When you're racing uh, Formula 5000 cars against Mario Andretti, uh, you'd race against him in the world sports cars because he was in the Ferrari program and stuff like that. Uh, was his stars obviously getting brighter and brighter as a, as a spokesman for the sport, yeah. hero of the sport? Did he have that charisma that we hear about then? Did he know he yes. was Mario Andretti when you raced yes. with him? Actually, yeah. when he went to Formula One, which would have been 76, yeah. so at the end of 75, when we heard what he was doing, yeah. I said, you're crazy. I said, these young guys are going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Not so for the first or last time. Right. I mean, Formula 5000 compared to sort of today is a whole different animal. You know, these these little cars with insanely, insanely powerful engines. Do you sort of look back at that with a fondness that almost like kind of today's generation doesn't get what those kind of cars really were all about? I don't know. I mean, it was just it was just so good. I mean, they were genuinely quick. And my fastest lap in uh, Road America, which is one of the few tracks that is similar mm -hmm. to what right. it was in those days, but although it's faster today, it's been resurfaced and it's right. wider in places. Sure. Yeah. I did 201 point something in 1975. At Road America. At Road America. <laughs> yeah, that's like... Yeah, currently sports racer kind of speed. I was going to say my yeah. GT3 car yeah. this year I think was like a 205. Yeah, it's you know, and we're flying. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 But like if you're a, so if you're just to kind of I hate to be this generic, but if you're a 22 year old kid listening to this podcast who's who's in college yeah. doesn't really know what Formula 5000 is. What what's an F5000 car? It's a it's a you know huge engine on a small chassis. Kind of explain to some of the basics. Like what kind of power? Did well, we had 500, and funny enough, I saw Ryan Faulkner who was. Vels Parnelli, Mario and Alan's engine builder okay. in that 7456, 3456 area. I saw him uh, at a car show somewhere earlier this year and I said, How much power did Mario have? You know, he said, yeah. 575 and it was never enough. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 500 horsepower, but on, on but, what kind of weight? But it broke, you know, so we had 500, but we didn't break. Yeah. So on what kind of weight? Uh, 13. Just over 13, 1350. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So that, hence yeah. those things were wicked, yeah. wicked fast. I mean, that's basically a go-kart yeah. with a lot of power. Yeah. All right. So we jump around quite a bit. That's kind of, yeah. there's, there's no sort of format to how we do this. Um, yeah. I'm so curious about the, the F1 stuff. So uh, because you only did a handful of races in, in your first season, I think you already got a podium in Spain. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I only did, you know, because the next race was the Belgian Grand Prix where the Where everything went south. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but... 
you're, you very publicly kind of moved away from F1 and said you just weren't interested and you, you were very happy in sports well, car. Well, I, I, I drove for McLaren uh, standing in for Peter Revson in 72. Okay. That um, several races didn't do very well. I made mistakes, which I didn't normally do. I didn't okay. make many mistakes. Was it just very um, different from what a sports car was like? No, it was just I was trying too hard. That was Got it. it. That was it. Yeah. And stupid things, like at the French Grand Prix, um, it was in an old hotel, and at the, the elevator was like 18-something. It was like a birdcage. Okay. You, know, you could see through Yeah, it. you had the, the bar. And so the, the night before the race, I'm going down to dinner. And as I came out, all the team mechanics were in the elevator. And they slammed the door shut and they said, bet you can't beat us down to the bottom. So I go hurtling <laughs> down the stairs. I get about four steps from the bottom and I tripped. Okay. And I went A over T and I wrecked my right ankle. Oh, wow. Wrecked it. And I cut my racing boot the next day for the race in order to get it on. For the swelling. Sure. Yes. So <laughs> I just drove. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Monaco I was fifth, which was okay in the rain, heavy rain. Uh, the Nürburgring I was fifth, but again I crashed in practice. I mean, you know, I knew the Nürburgring and I liked it. And I'd done four or five laps round the round the pits like this to warm the tyres up. And I came out of turn one and stood on it, and it went sideways, and I hit the barrier. Not terrible, you know, bad enough. It was yeah. repaired. So in the race. I just drove round. I had no spirit at all. I just right. drove mm -hmm. round. Mm -hmm. Trying not yeah. to crash, sure. You know, I, I could have been in the first three anyway. I should have been, but hopeless. And then, in a non-championship Formula One race at Brands Hatch, I was so, you know, not spending any money. I had a hole in my racing boot. <laughs> I come whistling into this corner. And I come off the throttle. The pedal had gone through the hole in my boot. I couldn't get my foot off the throttle. <laughs> oh, jeez. Crashed again. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So being cheap could cost you a career. Yeah. Yes. Or your life. Yeah. Or your life. <laughs> so yeah. The next thing formed the one was 73. By which time I've just done my first year with Jim Hall and Carl okay. Haas. Yeah. And great. And you're enjoying what you're doing and in enjoy F5000. It. Yeah. yeah. And they finished second in the championship, but only because I missed two races right. driving for Ferrari. Jody Schechter won, but I won five races and he won four. Wow. But I missed so you just two missed races. Sure. He never mentions that when we talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> he was a wild man. Was the money the same between F1 and, and everything else? Like you mentioned how you were barely getting paid in any of this. Was Just after in 73, the end of 73, I get a call from Don Nichols of Shadow. Yeah. Would yeah. you like to drive the spare car at the US Grand Prix? Watkins van. So I do. And I qualified well ahead of Oliver and uh, Fulmer. They were like in the 21st. Who were both in Yeah. 12 yeah. or something like that. But anyway, it, the throttle slides got jammed with dirt early on in the race when I was out. But he, Don said to me, would you like to do Formula 1 next year? And I thought, you know, I've just had this great year yeah. with Hall and Haas. And I know, you know, I'm going to be up in the two top three. And do I want to be in Formula 1 in the middle of the field? Yeah. So I, I decided against it. I said, no, thank you. And so the driver who took my place, uh, Peter Rebson, was killed. Yeah. And just after that, like days afterwards, Carl Haas rings. I'm sorry to say there's no 5,000 series. There's no money. It's off. Yeah. Day later, Don Nichols rings. Would you reconsider? Yeah. I said, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mention it. Yeah. Yeah. Now I do the Spanish Grand Prix. 
the Belgian Grand Prix at Nivelle. And we're at Monaco on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning at Monaco, my third race, yeah. 74. The phone rings, urgent call from America. Carl Haas, the series is back on again. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I told Don before the race, I said, this is my last Formula 1 race. Yeah. I'm going back to America. And, of course, the driver who took my place in team was killed, Tom Price. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, you were born in 1937. Right. Um, how much do you remember about the, from the war? Well, Burnley was about uh, 25 miles north of Manchester. Okay. And, uh, and about 60 miles to the east of Liverpool, which were both heavily bombed. Oh, so we had air raid warnings all the time, you know, and, and the routine was you went down into the living room and you tipped the sofa up against the wall. Because okay. the walls in England are all solid brick okay. or stone. You know, so you're just trying to deflect the bricks away yeah. from, from where you are. Sure. But only one bomb ever fell in Burnley. Uh, huh. That was a German bomber that was returning and it was just trying to l lessen its load. You know, it didn't drop it deliberately. Yeah. All right, so it's let's call it 1972. Just hypothetical. Friday night practice or Friday practice is over. You're at Road America. Who's your group that you want to take the Seabkins with you? To do what? To who, who do you want to take the Seabkins with you? Like who's the, who's your guys? Who's the funnest guys to go out with on Friday night? Who is who is the most fun? Um, probably David. From eight to one. At Mid Ohio, we'd been racing the. He'd been racing a BMW. I was racing the Lola T600. Cookwoods. And he was just about to start his dessert, you know. So it's sitting there, but he hasn't actually eaten it. And as, as I walked past, I just scooped it up and. <laughs> that right in the face. Yeah. Well, at Road America, a few weeks later, I'm sitting on the end of a table. Here it comes. Boom! Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I stood up, I said, lemon meringue. Well, that started a food fight. Yeah. And the owners of the uh, Seedkins, uh -huh. they were bringing bread rolls and, you know, and thing, the first to throw. <laughs> they were helping the food fight. Yeah. yeah. Major. Major. Oh. So Formula 5000 comes to an end for you. You've raced three times, won the championship three times, I should say. And now, uh, that kind of that. What, how does that deal run out? Well, it was all fantastic, and yeah. you know, in '77 I was already 40, but I thought I can probably do another, you know, six or seven years okay. of this, earning a, a living. And of course, SCCA changed the rules to Can-Am yeah. because they wanted to bring the promoters, the racetrack promoters weren't getting as good a crowd for 5,000 as they had for Can-Am. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, looking back, that was partially due to the times. Things were changing, sure, sure. you know. So, of course, you probably mentioned when I came to San Javit for the first race of the new season. Um, I hadn't seen the car, but I knew it would be good. Chaparral. And I go out, it's good. Mm -hmm. I come in, Jim Hall says, how is it? I said, it's good. He said, what do you want? I said, well, take quarter of an inch off the front wing. It was oversteering a bit too much. About that. And it, at 170 on the next lap, it took off on the main straight. Oh, uh, wow. 40 feet in the air. Yeah. Came down upside down. And it broke C1 
the shoulder, split my breastbone. Wow. Broke two ribs. The roll bar broke. I went down on the road. It wore the side of my helmet away, here and, and here, both sides. Jesus. And uh, my heart stopped. But the car, as it finished going upside down up the road, rolled off. And the, the, you know, the surrounding area was lower than the track. It landed on the wheels. Mm -hmm. The track doctor was a heart specialist. Uh, the ambulance blew a tire on the way to hospital. <laughs> and when Marion arrived from England the next morning, uh, the headline and front page of the Montreal paper showed the ambulance with the two guys working on the tire. Yeah. The doors were open. Me not looking too good. And uh, Redmond anymore. Redmond is dead. No way. Yeah. So. Wow. Uh, that took a long time to recover. Yeah. Yeah. And really, it ruined, uh, in many ways, ruined my life because at that time, I was racing in America and earning a reasonable amount. Yeah. Um, living in, I had a fantastic house in England. Mm -hmm. Going back to the 16th century, it was an old church house with a two-acre walled garden, big wall, 10 feet high. Right? And I had a 917 Porsche that I'd paid $19,000 for. Wow. Yeah, and I had to sell everything. Yeah. You know? And so, sold everything. Sold the, ni sold the 917 for $50,000 to Richard Outwood, and then I sold it for him 10 years later. Yeah. And I'm living in America by this time, and he said, you know, I'd like to sell the 917. And I said, well, I'll, I'll ask people that I know who might be interested. Yeah. But I couldn't find anybody. So a year later, he said, I really want to sell it and I said well we'll have to take it to auction right and we sold it at uh, Monterey for 1.2 million dollars mm -hmm. and then it was sold again and then Jerry Seinfeld bought it and he has it now mm -hmm. and it's one of the few 917s with an absolutely clear history it was the Steve McQueen film car right you know but in the film the the uh, a lot of the focus is on number 20 mm -hmm. well that was joseph at a my race car yeah and then they bought another 917 from porsche and made it look the same so the car i had was a replica of our race car right you know? so that's now said they say it's worth 20 million yeah right. so uh, the wrong business yeah <laughs> so so your wife gets on a plane and by this point has she has she been told that you passed on from this crash at Montreal? No. No. Okay. No. So she knows better than what they're saying in the press. Yes. Okay. Yeah. First thing I remember, which is probably four days later, was Jim. I'm tied. I have holes drilled in my head here, yeah. with a weight going down the back of the bed. Yeah. Right and I'm tied at my wrist, waist, and ankles, so I can't move. Yeah. And I open my eyes, and there's Jim Hall. And Jim says, "How are you feeling?" And I said, "Uh." I think I might have to miss the next race. <laughs> <laughs> so, after something like Montreblanc, how much pressure are you getting from home to stop driving? Um, well, Marion said, she, you know, she thought that I'd just stop. Yeah. But she only ever said uh, anything about it once, and that was in 68, after the Belgian accident. When she said, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to stop racing. And I said, I'm not doing it. And that's the only thing she ever said. But she never fought it again. No. How long have you been married? 55 years. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'd yeah. say, what's your secret? But I don't think either, either of us are ever going to get married. So. Yeah. You got to drive with uh, the Whittingtons along the way. Yes. 
He has a against them, but not. Twin yeah. drive with Bill at the. Mm. drive with. I drove with John Paul. So think about things like the Whittington's you drove for John Paul Jr. during that kind of crazy era. Oh. Um, did you have any idea what was going on with groups like that between John yes. Paul? You did, yeah. right? <laughs> and you're yeah. turning a blind eye, or you're well, just, you don't care. There were probably four or five drug dealers, you know. In yeah. no, we didn't particularly care. Sure. As long as it didn't directly affect us, sure. you know. So. No, we understand that. In one race, one of the Whittingtons had run John Paul Jr. off the track right. at uh, Road Atlanta. And on the slowing down lap, John Paul Sr. Yeah. Huge crash and broke his leg. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Don told us that story. Yeah, Don told us, yeah. Exactly. So you won the very first Long Beach Grand Prix. Yes. <laughs> Have you been there since? Yes. How different is Long Beach? Completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've seen photos where the cars are going by porn theaters and all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. What was Long Beach like in, in 1975? Well, to be kind, you'd call it rough and ready. <laughs> <laughs> it was very bumpy. Yeah. Very bumpy. Um, on the Friday afternoon in the final qualifying session, turn one was along, I think it was Ocean Drive, you know. Yeah, Ocean Boulevard. And then you took, right? Yeah. And you went over a hump. So the car... It didn't come off the ground, but it went light. So you come whistling down, whoop, into second gear, and, it, whoop, and then just for a fraction of a second, you could open the throttle wide open, downhill to that tight left. Well, towards the end of qualifying, I've done what I've been doing all, you know, for two days. Over the hump, up, and it goes, wah, goes sideways. So I said to Jim, I think something's broken in the diff. So he said, sure hate to take it apart the night before the race but we'll take a look and the Wiseman had broken the limited slip so in the race I was lying fourth behind Andretti Tony Bryce and Alan Sassinia and I'm feeling okay because the track's rough and I'm trying to be you know reasonably easy on it well the tenth lap the diff went again the limited slip went oh again wow. yeah. so now I have to go easy up the hill, or go easy here and there. And so I'm starting to drop back from the leading three. Next minute, Mario's out, broken gearbox. Bryce is out, broken drive shaft. Oh, okay. Alan's just stuck in the wall, and I'm leading. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's what it takes. Yeah. yeah. When's the last time you went to Long Beach? <laughs> when is the last time you went? Last time I went to... Um, I went last year, not Ooh. this last time, but I went last year. 2016, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, very different place. Yes, yeah. yes, completely. I mean, all the, in practice, um, there's little old, because they were all, you know, brothels, <laughs> pubs, in the, in and old people's homes yeah. In, yeah. back in, you know, in the 75. Yeah. And I'm standing in practice, and there's a little old lady from one of the hostels there. We're watching these cars. She says, tell me, Sonny, she says, are those real men in those cars? I said, well, I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a lucky win. Great win. One of the drivers you raced with and against back in the day was Helmet Marco. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. the Helmet Marco, like if you watch the Speed Merchants movie, seems like a regular guy. Now he's of Red Bull fame. He's one of the driver, you know, development leads on that whole thing. And he's notoriously hard as hell to get along with and very opinionated and doesn't care if it hurts your feelings. Is that 
because he's Helmet Marco now, or was he like that back then? I didn't interact with him much. I raced really? against him probably five or six times yeah. in South Africa okay. in the Springbok series. But let's say he never won. Copy that. <laughs> Copy that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a very good driver. Yeah. It was a terrible accident, but, you know, could probably have been worse. Yeah, because he had the rock go through the mm. visor, hit the eye. Yeah. Mm. So we do a pass-along question, and this morning we had lunch with Joey Chitwood third of Daytona, well, ISC, but formerly Daytona president as well as Indianapolis president, and his family was the Chitwood Thrill Show that was around for ages. He wanted to know, are all these stories that Hob tells about you, what percentage of them are true? What percentage of them are BS? Is it 50-50, 100% true? Well, they most have some element of truth underneath them. But, uh, you know, in 75, we won the Daytona... 75, we won Sebring 12 hours in a BMW CSL. And in 76, the Daytona 24 hours. So... Last year, I did 10 events for BMW, and the year before, 2015, I did 15 events for them. So David was saying, I can't, because he drove for BMW for probably four years. So he said to me, this is only like, you know, last, last, uh, last Christmas, not less than a year ago. He said, I can't understand why BMW keep inviting you to all these events and I, I never get invited. I said, well, you never won anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Jam. Shots fired. Yeah. Jam. And at 1974 at Alton Park, we're doing Formula 5000 and I'm in the low driving for Sid Taylor. Okay. And on the next to the last lap, in, you know, today there are two chicanes there. There's one before the straight and there's one after the straight. But okay. In those days there were none. And so I come whistling over this hill, and the car just, I'm doing probably 160 or so, the car just went, what? Like this. I go, so, anyway, I look in the mirror, and the rear wing had broken. Okay. And the rear wing's hanging down like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, when it broke, I was leading David Hobbs by 27 seconds. So as we crossed the start finish line for the start of the last lap, with me with a broken wing, yeah. he's on my gearbox, but he was still there at the end of the lap. <laughs> <laughs> and his wife, Margaret, she was mad as hell. She said to him, Dave should have won. And Mary said, but, you know, Brian's got a broken wing. She said, it doesn't matter, a win's a win. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so part of this pass-along question is to then ask of our next guest. So as soon as we're done here, we're literally going up to Charlotte. Really? Um, uh, we'll be there. I mean, we'll still drive tomorrow, so we'll stop halfway through. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to meet with uh, Joseph Newgard. Oh, are you? Fantastic. Yes. So, yes. Um, you can take a minute to think of it, but if you could ask any question of Joseph Newgard, it doesn't have to be racing. It can be anything you want. Uh, if you could ask a question of Joseph <laughs> Newgard, what would it be? How did Jeremy Shaw make a contribution to your success? <laughs> That's perfect. So he raced the Group 44 Jags, mid-80s. And the Lola T600. Uh, the, the thing that strikes me about the Jag, that was a factory back program, right, with Group 44. Mm -hmm. How old were you then? 47, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. the late 40s, and you drove that car for a couple of years. Three. Yeah. You were hired to do the, the prototype car for Jag USA, basically, you know, with Bob Tullius and Doc Bundy mm -hmm. and all those guys. 
nowadays that would never happen. No. You know, I think <laughs> you guys were kind of the last era of where you see, yeah. you know, guys like you because you had the experience or whatever, get these big factory rides. Now they go pick the kid out of F3 or whatever mm -hmm. it is and stick them in the prototype car. Um, at, at this point in your career, are you thinking, I'm getting a little old for this young man's game? Or are you like, <laughs> hey, I'm still winning? No, I'm not winning. I was mentioned earlier, I, I drive in races. I'm not <laughs> racing. <laughs> well. And that was a WSC car. That was a world, it was GTP basically, the, the World Endurance Championship yeah, of that. would now be like a DP <laughs> exactly. at 52 years old. Yeah. It's funny, the Le Mans, where we didn't have a chance because <laughs> the top speed on the car was terrible. It was, we were doing 211 down the Malsanne, right. no chicanes. And the Jags and Mercs were doing 2.45. Oh, yeah. Okay, so no hope. We could stay with them. If yeah. they passed us coming into the Porsche curves, yeah. we could be with them at the start of the Malsanne, but then... See you later. Gone. Yeah. Yep. But Peter Levanos, the team owner, uh, we were in 11th place. Okay. There's one hour to go. By some miracle, it's still running. <laughs> and Peter said, Brian, would you like to do the last hour? And there was a kind of... I, said, I didn't really care because, you know. I said, oh, well, so off I go. Well... What are we going to do? So at our Nage, you know, the right-hander, yep. it would slide very easily in the second gear. So a couple of laps, I just, ooh, just for yeah. fun. Yeah. So the, the next time I didn't. Yeah. And the next time I come around, there's a group of about 10 English fans on yeah. the right-hand side, on yeah. the inside. And up comes this handwritten sign. Give us some oppo. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they spin it. <laughs> so the next lap... Next lap, another sign comes up. Now, fastest lap. <laughs> nice. nice, nice. And then the third and final time, crumpets and tea with the queen. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, with Julius. And, and you're seeing this while you're racing at Le Mans, the 24 hours in a prototype car. Yeah. yeah. In the final hour. Yeah. Yeah, he's right like, away. Oh, yeah, what's the sign going to say this Why time? Not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Le Mans was the real. I mean, it's the only one of all those world sports car races that really mattered yeah, yeah. Of course. and was, and I, we never won I mean I led four times I think that, w that was yeah. actually gonna be something I was gonna ask yeah, yeah is, the class one uh, yeah it's like oh what, yeah, yeah you know uh, what things like Le Mans or the Indy 500 or, or Monaco Grand Prix, what what race sort of do you feel you missed what's what's the one that you didn't Le get? Mans yeah. yeah well in 1970 well, as mentioned earlier, in 69 we were leading when the 908 gearbox overheated. In 1970 we were leading by four laps. It's pouring with rain and Jackie Ickes in the factory Ferrari 512 is in second place and he caught Joe and now they're racing, you know. And Ickes went off and a corner worker was killed. And Siffert uh, <laughs> comes out of the chicane by the pits. In those days the pit entrance was immediately to the right after you came through the chicane. Well, there's three slower cars all having their own battle and they're all alongside each other like this is no room, you know. And he comes out of the, out of the chicane, whoa, and second, whoa, whoa, and he comes right to the right-hand side and he's going to go between the right-hand car and the pit wall and right opposite the Porsche pit, Mr. Gear. And we all heard the engine go, whoa. Yeah, that, that 917 engine would go to 8, 2, for 40 hours, if it went once to 8.4, it broke. You could not miss a gear. I mean, it's, it's so easy to miss a gear. Synchromesh gearbox. Synchromesh gets worn out, you know. Oh. Yeah, and then we were leading in the 9.35 
in 80 with uh, John Fitzpatrick and Dick Barber. Went on to five cylinders, but won the class. Finished fifth overall. Yeah, finished fifth overall and won the class in 78 with John Paul. But never won. And then 79. <laughs> Talk about a drama there. I'm, as mentioned earlier, I haven't done a lot of racing since the accident in 77. So I'm not really in, you know, best shape really. So I get a call from Porsche. Herr Edmund, you would like to drive with Herr X at Le Mans in the 9.36? Yes, off we go. Well, my first session, I come through the chicane and it didn't feel right in the second part, the right-hand part. I, just, I should have gone in the pit, because, you know, but I didn't. So now I turn into the Dunlop curve at 180 miles an hour and spin. Left rear tyre had gone. That's what I'd from. I go spinning around, I hear the bodywork coming off, bits cracking and banging. And suddenly I'm heading at the barrier like this and I swerved and missed it. And I stopped at the start of the Mulsanne to one side, off to the left. I got the toolkit out that has a hacksaw in it with a duct tape round it. And I cut the tyre off the rim, it took, which took me a long time. And then I limp round, you know, for seven miles on the rim. With the cars going... And I think for sure we're out. Half an hour later we're running in. Oh... Now it's one in the morning and we've been last, but now we're like 18th or something, you know, we're time. And I'm up above the pits, as you could in those days, with my oldest friend in the world, Ian Green. And suddenly we see on the little television monitor, X is stopped on the Malsan. Half an hour later, X is going again. Huh. Fuel pump drive belt had broken and we had a spare one in the toolkit. Right, so you had to fix it. Yeah. yeah. Five minutes later... X is stopped again. Now oh. he's at the Mulsanne corner, stopped. And I know for sure this is it. You know, and I was pretty relieved, I can tell you, because the rain and the lightning. Half an hour later, X is going again. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, Norbert Singer, the team manager, looks up, he sees me. Well, no, this is it. So I shook hands with Ian, I said, goodbye Ian, I think this is it, I'm dead. So out I go. I've done 45 minutes in this terrible condition. You can't see, you know, the headlights aren't any good. Yeah, it's terrible. I get an out-of-sequence pit signal. Pit. I go in the pits. Singer leans over. Herr Edmund, you can get out of the car. We were disqualified one hour ago. Thanks for risking your life, though. Thanks for that. Jesus. So, Sean and I are always wondering, with, like, a driver like you, you raced against, you name it, Vic Elford, Mario Andretti, you know, the legends of the sport. No one like, no, no, no pro driver likes to lose. Was there ever anyone that if you lost to him, you were like, oh, man, not him or not her? Well, it was a guy who was basically absolutely useless. He was called Larry Gunsam. Okay. Yeah. And when he beat you, not okay. Not okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. Of all the cars you raced, because you got to race so many of them, you know, like the 917 golf car is like so many people's fantasy. I'll wait for that to stop. <laughs> so of all the cars you got to race, the 917 golf for me is like an all-time favorite. You know, it's a, it's a fan favorite car. But you also got to drive the 917-30 Penske car, uh, the 908 Targa Florio car, then the Group 44 Jag, 962s. What, is there a car that stands out in your career 
that you're like, that was my favorite car. That was the one that I was wondering. Well, you know, of course, winning the championships in the Lola T332C. Yeah. Uh, and the trouble is, you know, people want you to say Ferrari or Porsche, but, but that was a fantastic car yeah. for me. And the best four years of my racing career. Right. 917, by, of course, in 69, it was really terrible. But by 70, it was very good. But what I didn't like about it was... It was really an old-fashioned design okay. when it came out with a with an aluminum tubular space frame chassis, which, if you hit something hard enough, broke in half yeah, right. you know, across the cockpit. Yeah. And so when you're at Le Mans or Monza or Spa-Francorchamps, you know, that was in my mind the night before the race. You know, at Spa, you know, this was just a country road, yeah. really, not a track at all. And uh, the Master Straight... Uh, there was a kink, and you went through a farmyard. And that's where Jackie Stewart got hung up in his car, you know, in the Grand Prix, yeah. when petrol fuel flowing all over him. Right. But we came into that kink at 214 miles an hour. Jesus. You know, and went through it at 180. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the speeds for a road, it's not a track, were just unbelievable. And so, knowing that if you hit something hard enough, the 917 was going to break in half. Yeah, right. Takes it off my favorite list. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Before you go, 50 years of history in the sport, who is the one funniest driver? The one... What? Who is the funniest driver funniest. in all 50 <laughs> years? <laughs> no. Probably David Hobbs, because it's not a funny sport, is it? You know, there's not a lot of amusement. Right. You know, but in the old days, when there was much more danger, we used to let off steam at these after-dinner parties. Yeah. Even Formula One, because nobody flew home. You know, there were always parties. I had some yeah. monumental after-race parties. Jesus. Right. So. <laughs> Who was the best with girls? Probably Joe Siffert. Yeah. Huh. I, mean, I was okay. uh, constantly <laughs> trying to get him out of trouble. <laughs> 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 you know, seven in the morning, the phone ring. Brian, Brian. Yes, John. You know I am here with Simone and, and my wife is coming at, in one hour. Please take her to breakfast. Arturo <laughs> 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 well, Mazzari was pretty good because at the Nürburgring in 1972, we were driving together. And we'd agreed with Clay Regazzoni to go to dinner. And we're in the old sport hotel. So Regazzoni and I go to his room and we bang on the door. Nothing. Ciao. Means come in, hello. Yeah. We open the door. <laughs> he's there between these German camp followers. Big girls with huge knockers. <laughs> and he's a thin, he's only about five foot three. <laughs> yeah. And he's thin like this, you know. Yeah. And yeah. he's in the middle. <laughs> so Regazzoni and I, we stand there looking at this lot. <laughs> Regazzoni says, girls, easy. What do you do without you do? He is so little. <laughs> and one of them says, Yes, she says, little, but good. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, yeah. uh, you've been extremely generous with your time. Thank well, you very much. Uh, unfortunately, poor Dario has been waiting in the car the whole time. Yeah. So, yeah. so he's got to drive us back. He's but, starving, uh, too. Yeah, so Continental's got the check. Good. What, how much was it? Oh, don't worry about that, no. please. Well, yeah, this I'll, is I'll get the tip. It's on us. What? No, 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 stop that. No, 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 it's no, part no, of the deal. No, no, it's part, part of the deal. deal. Yeah, yeah. I'm finished. Brian Redman. Huh? What'd you think? 
I know we made the joke during the uh, the intro and, and during the episode, but that dude recall is insane. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who could just spout off names, locations, history, things like that. So on the moment, spanning back 60 years. So kudos to him. Thanks for giving the time. Uh, you know, you knew Ryan maybe a little bit, but not really. Didn't really know me. And he, and he probably sat down for several hours. So I uh, want to give a quick shout out to Mr. Brian Hall and Randy Brink, who uh, suggested him. And hopefully uh, it was everything you had expected and now let's move on to yet another uh, music submission this one coming to us from i'm probably going to pronounce it wrong but uh, it's a uh, rachel pashkit p-a-s-c-h-k-e-t uh you can uh, find a lot of her music at one rpm.com that's literally spelled out one o-n-e rpm.com here's a song of hers called cards you hold could ever shield you from your pain One step up Three steps down And somehow you think you won I would give anything more To see you play the cards you hold And maybe it were easier Easier now Well maybe then you might know But since your life ain't pleasing ya, pleasing you now, you give it up and no come and go. It takes time for the light to shield way to the dark. Cover yourself in diamonds. But you and I still share the mark Forty days in a dream That won't get you through the night I hope for you that someday soon It all turns out alright And maybe if it were easier, easier But maybe then you might know But since your life ain't pleasing ya, pleasing you, you give it up and no come and go. And maybe you should play the cards you hold. Play the cards you hold. 